Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in the human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What is then? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let me pray for us as we dig into this text today. Father, so grateful that we can gather together in the name of Jesus and in the presence of your spirit. We just thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you're for us. Thank you that the gospel is good news to every single human being who's ever been born. And God, we pray you give us ears to hear it today. We ask that you'd strengthen us and give us courage as we continue to serve you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul wrote this letter. Wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. He planted this church in Corinth four or five, maybe six years before he's writing the letter. That's when he was originally there. Uh, He was writing a letter to a group of people who he loves deeply. The text we're looking at today, though, it seems like he cuts them real deep. Loves them deeply, and he's going to cut them deeply. He says in in this passage, he says they are fleshly, they're unspiritual. He calls them babies. It doesn't mean the cute kind of babies. Babies are cute when they're babies. Um, Adults behaving like babies, not cute. He says their community is filled with jealousy and strife. He says that they are merely human, which is not a compliment calls them out for elevating individual preachers and leaders too high, which then causes the factions and divisions that he needs to deal with in this letter. See, their immaturity meant they had cultivated in themselves an overinflated sense of their own spiritual awesomeness. And he's about to take them down a peg. Now, honestly, this text would be way easier to preach if I thought you were a terrible group of people who were super immature in your faith, because then I could just embody the tone of the text and just rebuke you. But instead of doing that today, because I love you, I just just want you to know, too, if I felt like we needed that, I would do that. Just so you know, that's the church you're part of. If that's what we needed, that's what we would have today. Nobody on our team are fearful of doing that. Instead of that, let me tell you something else. Instead of that, let's talk about two signs of congregational immaturity, and then we'll talk about the way things actually grow. Two signs of congregational immaturity, and then the way that things actually grow. Uh, We're going to talk about these two signs of congregational immaturity. They are misunderstanding of spiritual growth, and secondly, a toleration of factions and divisions. And then we're going to just look at a biblical model of growth, verses 5 to 9. Misunderstanding of spiritual growth. Secondly, toleration of factions and divisions. And then third, we'll look at a biblical model of growth. Now, let me tell you why I think this text cuts so deep into the heart of the church in Corinth. 
And in order to show you this, I need to dip back into what Sam preached a little bit from chapter two last week. In chapter two, we saw that there was a spiritual person and a natural person. Verse 12 in chapter two says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the capital S spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, okay? Two kinds of people, the spiritual and the natural. The spiritual are those who are in Christ. They have received the Holy Spirit. They are walking in relationship with God through the gospel, spiritual people. Then there's the natural. The natural are those, it says in the text, who have not accepted the truth of the gospel, who are not walking in relationship with God and who have not received the spirit. The spiritual in this context are Christians. The natural in this context are not. Okay, this is a categorical oversimplification of the human condition, and Paul knows that when he writes it in chapter 2. It is an oversimplification of, this, of, of the whole circumstance there in the church. Now imagine this with me for a second. Imagine you're a first century Corinthian. Okay, I know it's cold outside. It's warm in Corinth. Come with me. You're a first century Corinthian. You became a Christian when Paul came and was evangelizing people, proclaiming the gospel. He was planting a church in Corinth. You became part of that church very early on. It's been four or five years since then, but you are a Christian. You are among the group of people Paul calls spiritual. And in fact, because you're a first century Corinthian, you think very highly of your spirituality. You're a bit high on your own spirituality. Like when there's a group dinner and you're all together having a meal, they ask you to pray. Oh, would you pray for us? Just bless the food. And because you're spiritual, you said, "Mm -hmm. oh, I could, okay. I, I don't want to, but thank you for acknowledging that I am a spiritual person. I will pray for the meal. Now, just as an aside, if you're praying for the meal, thank you, Lord, for the food. Thank you for the hunger that reminds us that we have needs. Bless the hands that prepared it, amen. If you start out with, as it says in Malachi, when you're praying for the food, it just that you fit in really well with the Corinthians. Okay, drives me nuts. Okay, good. I pray a lot of these prayers. If you want a short dinner prayer, I'm your guy. I fit in very well with the Corinthian spirituality. Okay. Now, I know this is not true of you. That's why I said, imagine with me that you're the spiritual person. You would never do that. That's your... A Vancouverite, not a Corinthian, but imagine that you were a Corinthian Christian. Okay? You're a spiritual person. It's Sunday. Rather than having your preacher stand up and proclaim a sermon, the leader that day gets up and they go, you know what? We just got this letter from Paul the Apostle. We're going to read it for everybody. And the whole congregation's there together and they go, my goodness, this is going to be wonderful. Paul the Apostle, he's got planted the church years ago. I haven't seen him for a while. I heard he's in Ephesus. He wrote us a letter. Let's read it together. So they sit down and they're beginning to read the letter. 
They get to the part where we read it last week that distinguishes between the spiritual and the natural. And you got to think all the people in the church in Corinth who think they're really, really spiritual people are listening to that. And they're going, yeah, that's right. I'm the spiritual, not the natural. And they're giving the little elbow bump to the person next to them. We're spiritual. And then they go, hey, hey, Stephanos, you hear me pray that prayer last night at dinner? Pretty spiritual. And they feel pretty good in chapter two. Then we get to chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people because of the flesh. You are people of the flesh. Infants in Christ. They felt awesome about themselves as the spiritual people. And then he smacks them with some truth. He loves them. But there's something that they need to hear. But I, brothers and sisters, he says yes to all of you who are gathered. It's the church of God in Corinth. I cannot address you as spiritual persons, but as fleshly people, as babies in Christ. Okay, that sounds harsh because it is. It's a harsh word to them. He knows they are the spiritual people that he was talking about in chapter two. He calls them brothers and sisters. He's not saying they're not Christians. He knows that they're Christians. He's not trying to say that they're natural. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is he's correcting the oversimplification in chapter two of their being spiritual and natural. And he's saying under the category of spiritual, there are some who are mature and some who are immature. He's talking about the spiritual category of people. He's talking about people who follow Jesus. And he's nuancing and clarifying the differences within that category. Okay, last week, chapter 2, verse 6, he talks about mature people. This week, chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about infants, poopy diaper baby people. That's what he's talking about. People in their nappies, if you were from England like John. That's what he's getting at. People of the flesh merely human. And what he's saying is, hey, church in Corinth, brothers and sisters, I know you're Christians. I know you're spiritual people filled with the Holy Spirit. You're not acting like it. That's what he's getting at. He's very careful. doesn't call them natural, which meant they weren't believers. He calls them spiritual, but people of the flesh. The charge against the church in Corinth is that they are Christians, but that they are immature and behaving in a fleshly, unspiritual manner. Why does he say this? Okay, Again, I see at least two reasons just here in this text. There's more through the rest of the book. I'm calling them two signs of congregational immaturity. And the first is that they have a misunderstanding of spiritual growth. Look at the first verses 1-2 and the first part of verse 3. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. All right. I think this text is a little bit trickier than it looks on its first reading, but I think it's really important. So so hang with me. Trust me that I'm taking you somewhere. I think it's important. How do we read this about the milk and the solid food? 
It's the question we need to look at. You're spiritual people. How do we read this? Now, don't forget, this is the letter that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. It's a response to the letter that he received from them. So there's been some conversation going on that we're not privy to. But he's driving at something here that I think is a response to what they're saying about him and about the way that he ministers the gospel. I think they want something from him that they would consider solid food. I think they believe that Paul thinks too little of them because they have a very overinflated view of their own spirituality. I think that this church believes there must be a fancier, higher, deeper truth that Paul is withholding from them because he's always just talking about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's saying in a way, you're still struggling to digest the baby food that somebody blended up for you. You're still having a hard time drinking the milk. You are not as mature as you think you are. I like Paul. Because he patiently works through all of their problems as a really good pastor. But he doesn't pull a punch when he needs to really help them to feel it. Paul just keeps preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I know that you're still immature because you don't think Jesus Christ and him crucified is that big of a deal. You want ethereal truths. You want hyper-spiritual experiences. And I'm just here to tell you that I've been giving you what you need. Just look at chapter one at what he said. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's tough for me to imagine Paul the Apostle laying out a foundation of the gospel like this, where the whole of Christianity is built on Christ crucified, who is stronger than any human power and wiser than any human wisdom. It's very difficult for me to imagine that and to think that that is anything less than the solid food. Doesn't get more solid than this. That confession and assurance that Jacob did today, we confessed our sin corporately. We prayed that out loud together. And then he said something like, We just have the assurance of your love and your forgiveness and your mercy, and I just tear up. It doesn't get deeper than that. That's as good as it gets. And if you're looking for spiritual truths beyond that, I I don't don't know, man. I'm not sure I have any for you. Now, other other things we can talk about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can spend the rest of our lives studying the scripture and learning about God. I think we're going to spend the rest of eternity getting to know him. But it just doesn't get any deeper than that. Paul Gardner wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians. He said, life commitment to this message, he's talking about Christ crucified, could hardly have been called a commitment to milk. Okay, Paul keeps going into chapter two. He says in verse two, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what's the actual problem here? What's going on? Let me say it like this. The problem is not the food. The problem is their appetite. They do not have a palate for the gospel that Paul is serving up. Paul Gardner, again, to quote him again, he said, the Corinthians are eating at the trough of the wisdom of this age rather than of God in Christ. Anytime someone says something like the trough of the wisdom of this age, like I grew up in a farming community where I saw pigs hit the trough. That's gross. It's a visceral image. They think the milk of the gospel is what gets you in the door of Christianity. But there must be something else that causes spiritual growth. And Paul's whole point to them is, you have been more formed by the Corinthian culture all around you than you have by the gospel. And that's why I think they misunderstand spiritual growth. See, Christ City, you don't graduate the gospel, you move deeper into it. Spiritual growth for the Christian is moving deeper into what we already know. It's not moving past what we already know. Like 10, 12 years ago, I was at a church and this pastor got up and the whole premise of his sermon was that we needed to move beyond the cross. I felt icky in my tummy. So that's a nauseating thought. You don't move beyond the cross. You move deeper into the truth that the cross opens up for us. You don't move beyond it. The Corinthians didn't understand that spiritual growth for the Christian is becoming who you already are in Christ and that you do not do that by moving on from the gospel. You do that by moving deeper into it. I can just imagine that the letter that Paul received could have said something like, Paul, we're struggling with your apostolic authority in our church because honestly, we've heard what you have to say. We're looking for the solid food. There's other spiritualities all around us in the city of Corinth and they all have progressively stronger ideas and how you can ascend to new heights of spiritual you know, awakenedness or whatever. And Paul, you just kind of always give us the milk. And Paul's point is, because you think I'm only giving you the milk, I know that you're too immature to take anything else. Like I don't have more than one sermon. I don't know, if you've been here for a while, you already know this. I, got, I basically have one sermon. I can preach it from anywhere in the Bible. This is it. So like, if this is your first time here, it's been great. I just don't have a whole lot else because I really think that I just want to go deeper into the gospel. There's a, a woman named Morna Hooker in, years ago in the 1960s. She wrote, the fundamental contrast in Paul's mind is between the true food of the gospel, and she says whether it's milk or solid food, whatever, categorically, true food of the gospel, and the synthetic substitutes which the Corinthians have preferred. 
their palate was not alive to the true food of the gospel. So don't read this as a contrast of like level one gospel and level 10 gospel. It's milk and solid food. I don't think that's what's happening here. Read this as a contrast between the message of the gospel and the message of worldly wisdom. See, Christian growth and maturity depend on the power of the gospel, not human wisdom. And we're going to see, depending on the power of the gospel, is actually what leads you to unity rather than human-centered factions and divisions as well. Okay. So I said the charge against the church in Corinth is that they are Christians, but that they are immature and they are behaving as fleshly, spiritually immature people. Okay, that's the charge. What's the evidence that backs this up? Two things that I'm calling congregational immaturity. One, a misunderstanding of spiritual growth, right? They want something beyond the gospel. And two, they are tolerating factions and divisions among them. That might even be too soft, that they're tolerating factions and divisions. They're creating them and moving pretty deep into them. The second sign of congregational immaturity is the elevation of a personality or a leader in a way that leads to faction and division and jealousy and strife in the church. Okay, put yourself back in the room with me in Corinth. First time you're hearing the letter. You're sitting there and you're sweating because it's hot in Corinth and now you want a glass of milk. That was a joke because they're talking about milk in the text. It's probably not funny if I have to explain it. I get it. I get it. I won't do it in the second gathering. You're sitting beside Stephanos or Stephania and you're both on Team Apollos. On the other side of the room, you've got some Team Paul people. And you sit apart from each other because, well, you know how they think. It says this, chapter 3, the second half of verse 3 says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now you feel the weight of your immaturity because you're not even sitting mixed. Definitely guilty of acting in a merely human way. And all of a sudden, the charge of immaturity starts to get in your heart a little bit too because you're going, oh, shoot, maybe I am. The tolerance of factions and divisions is the problem that Paul has been addressing since verse 10 of chapter 1 all the way through. Sam preached a message a few weeks ago in that sermon where he said that he and I are different because he grew up urban and I grew up rural and he is Chinese and I am not and and he's short and I'm handsome or something like that, he said. (laughs) It was something like that. In verse 10, he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Okay, all the way from there, 
through the rest of chapter one, through all of chapter two, and here into chapter three, there is a sustained argument that the church of God in Corinth needs to be united in Christ. Which, by the way, was Sam's whole point when he just ripped on me for a while. It's his whole point, that there is honestly nothing that would normally bring us together. We're from different parts of the world, grew up in different backgrounds, have different thoughts about things. The only thing we agree on is the gospel. And that's enough. It's way more than enough. He's my brother. We've got no reason to be united apart from the gospel, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've actually been united by something that is infinitely stronger than anything that could ever divide us. And Paul's saying that to them. He's saying to us, the foundation of the unity in the church is the cross of Christ. He is saying the foundation of the wisdom of God is the cross of Christ. The foundation of our understanding of the power of God and our experience of salvation, it's the cross of Christ. The foundation of spiritual growth is the cross of Christ. And their toleration of factions and divisions in the church in Corinth is evidence of their spiritual immaturity. Paul says they're being merely human in their thinking. So if you try and make anyone or anything but Jesus the center of the unity that we would have in the church, you're going to have division. Pick a topic, it will not unite us in a strong enough way to hold us together. Insert cultural commentary on your own. All your preferences in the world will not hold us together. They won't. But the gospel can hold us together in all of our differences. When we talk about the unity of the church, whether, whether we're talking about Christ City, whether we're talking about the church global, the church universal, the, the worst thing we can do is take our eyes off of Jesus and onto ourselves or some of our ideas and become unity conscious in that sense. It's the worst thing we can do. Don't become unity conscious. That's not the answer to solving factions and divisions in the church. It's not. It's not. It fails because it still makes us the center. Like, I'm sure that the people who signed up for Team Paul and the people who signed up for Team Apollos, I'm sure they had great intention. I'm sure they just thought that for whatever reason, that person was leading better. I'm sure that's what they thought. Don't become unity conscious. When you become unity conscious, it's merely human. Be Christ conscious because that's the only way we can be truly united. You don't become unity conscious, you become Christ conscious. We're united by something that's stronger than anything that could ever divide us. And that means we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. My favorite illustration of this comes from A.W. Tozer. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were it to become unity conscious, whether, were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. How do we hold in there together? Jesus. There's a song about it. You turn your eyes 
upon Jesus. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. Romans, all the way through. First and Second Corinthians, all the way through. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You're getting the theme here. The Gospels, telling the story of Jesus. Guess what? The whole Old Testament points to him. Genesis to Revelation. Just keep Jesus at the center of it. We're not going to agree on everything. You probably can't believe some of the things that I think. Guess what? I can't believe some of the things you think. But I love Jesus. So do you. That should be enough. I said we'd look at two signs of congregational immaturity, and then we talk about the way things actually grow. So there's misunderstanding of spiritual growth, and then the way things actually grow, or then, uh, sorry, uh, misunderstanding of spiritual growth, a toleration of factions and divisions, but then we'll look here at the biblical model of growth. This is going to lead us into where we're going to go next week, too. So the whole text flows together. It says in verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Again, it is a slap in the face from Paul the Apostle who loves this church very much, but it's a slap against their divisive slogans of I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. He's like, well, what's Apollos and what's Paul? I love that. He doesn't even personalize it. He doesn't say, who's Apollos? He goes, what's Apollos? As the unifying center of the whole world. It's not great is what Apollos is. The answer is, they're servants of the Lord who just do what they're told. Told you, I'm not a complicated person. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. He goes, what? It's Apollos. What? It's Paul. Servants through whom you came to faith, who were just doing what was assigned to them. That's it. It's Church Leadership 101. Leaders are servants. Service team leaders who organize all the volunteer teams are servants. Deacons in our church are servants. People who are going to be putting up all of the stuff today for the Halloween party so that our neighborhood knows that we love them. We want there to be a bright, nice place for them to come where we can shine a little bit of the light of Jesus into the neighborhood. Servants. Staff team running around here on details that most of us would never see. Servants. People teaching kids downstairs right now. Servants. Kids team leaders, youth team leaders, you go all the way through. Worship leaders, servants. Pastors, servants. Super apostles like Paul, servant. Doing what? Only what's assigned to him. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Look at the next part of the text. Verse 5, what then is Apollos, what then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He says in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Paul says, I served you as it was assigned to me by God. Apollos served you as it was assigned to him by God. But God gave the growth. Okay, 
I grew up in a farming community, as I alluded to earlier. I know for a fact that some of my friends this year planted seeds in their field in the spring. And I know that they irrigated the soil. Plus, they did a whole bunch of other things that we do in the 21st century to make that thing grow. And here's what I know. The weather this summer did not cooperate and their crops failed. They did everything that they were supposed to do and they lost their crops. I know church planters who have gone through the exact same training as I went through and Jake went through and our church planting apprentices go through and they moved into a community and they said, we're here to plant a church and they planted the seed and they irrigated the soil and their church doesn't exist anymore. Why? I have no idea, but it's God who gives the growth. So that means when Christ City goes around the city and plants churches and things go well, we should probably just duck a little bit. We're not that awesome at this. Like, no one wants to see how the sausage is made? You should see how our team puts a church plant together. Okay? When it does well, we're like, man, God is powerful. I think we're involved in it. And Paul's never saying that he and Apollos are not involved in the work that's going on. He's not saying, look, I didn't do anything. That's just false humility and nonsense. He's like, no, I showed up. I just did what God told me to do. Then Apollos showed up. He did what God told him to do. And God brought the growth. The last two weeks in a row, I've been at two different church planting conferences and led it spoke at both of them. These are not the brightest guys in the world. I just need to tell you this. We just do what God tells us to do. And God works through obedience with dumb people. He works through obedience with simple people who only have one sermon and preach it the same every week from different texts. Like showing up is 99% of my job. Just hoping that God does something. Because if he doesn't, there'll be no growth. Do you see that in the text? Like, I love our church. You're wonderful. You're part of a great church. It's only great because the gospel's true and God has blessed us. That's it. The church in Corinth wanted to make ministry heroes out of Paul and Apollos, and he just shuts it down. He goes, we're servants. We just do what we're told. It all depends on God. Look at the rest of the text. Verse five. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. I like that. And each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It says in verse eight, he who plants and he who waters are one. Why are they one? Because they're in Christ together. They've got different job descriptions in the kingdom, but they're working for the same goal. And he says to the church in Corinth in this one little line, you can't divide us. You can't sit there in Corinth while I'm away in Ephesus and you can't make up things about how me and Apollos aren't on the same page. Let me tell you right now, we are one because we are working for the one God. And we're tilling the one field that he has called us to together. 
you can't drive us apart. It's all his. Biblical model of growth. It's mind-bendingly simple. God's servant workers doing God's assigned tasks in the unity we have in Christ because all things belong to God. Verse 9 says we are God's fellow workers. That doesn't mean that like we're running kind of up on the same front line as God. We're like, look at me, I'm doing my thing over here and Jesus over there doing his thing. That's not what it means. It's not the way the sentence is constructed. Paul and Apollos are fellow workers who belong to God. God's workers in God's field. Next week, we're going to see God's building. And the whole thing continues down. We continue into this book. See, we grow in the gospel. We don't grow beyond the gospel. We are unified in Christ. We are not unified in all of our particular ideologies and thoughts. We're united in Christ. We do God's work in God's way for God's glory. About eight years ago, Allison and I went to a theater. And at the front door of the theater, there was a large glass door. And this is the so what that that I'm trying to communicate. We walked into the theater, opened up this giant glass door. We walked inside. We went up this escalator. We went and got our tickets. We went and watched a movie. We came out. We came down the escalator, and that whole door was shattered. You ever see when those doors shatter, and they just all spiderweb all the way through it? You can't see through it anymore. Here's why this matters. The city around us is trying to figure out who God is, and they're looking through you. So when you think you're really mature, but you're functionally immature, but you want some sort of super spiritual thing, and you want to transcend the gospel and move beyond it, but really you just need to go deeper into it, what you're doing is obscuring the love of God for those around who are trying to look through the window and figure out who we are. Okay, when we, when we break up into factions and divisions, and this breaks my heart because it's all over our city, by God's grace, it's not really in our church, but all over the city, there's churches that won't talk to each other, pastors who aren't talking to each other, pastors who are in competition with each other, congregants of that church, you go, oh, that church? Oh, I follow Apollos. Those are Paul people. It's like the window's broken and you can't see through it anymore. That nastiness obscures the beauty of who God is. That's why this matters. We just need to humble ourselves a little bit. Follow the example of our servant King Jesus who came to serve all of us through his life and his death, his burial and his resurrection. Because there's a world who want to know who he is. Immaturity in Christ obscures the truth of the gospel. Division in the church obscures the truth of the gospel. And when we understand that it's actually God doing all the work, I think people are able to see it a little more clearly.